The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. I'm joined by the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue. Minister, good morning. Good morning, Pass. You pulled an all-nighter virtually. Yes, <laughs> we've been up all night. Uh, uh, the white smoke emerged uh, about what time? So, uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, this is a process now that has been underway uh, in in different ways now since last July. Uh, we moved into uh, more visible and formal negotiations in the Workplace Relations Commission there uh, from November onwards. Uh, and just in the last few minutes, uh, agreement uh, has been reached on proposals that I'll be recommending to government. And I know the unions will be taking to their representative body later in the morning. Yeah, there are a total of 19 unions involved in all of this. Covering approximately 400,000 workers in all forms of our public service. The bones of the agreement, uh, people have probably been hearing it already this morning, it's uh, 10.25%, whereas the previous offer, which was rejected by the unions, was 8.5%. It's paid over a two and a half year period. But it's this is a detail that I had only discovered now in your statement. It's made up of pay increases totaling 9.25%, but then 1% is available for local bargaining. Yes, indeed. So if I could just offer a quick perspective on the overall agreement itself. Uh, uh, public sector wage agreements that go over a number of years uh, have been really important for helping us both recognise the value of the work our public servants do, but also be fair and affordable to taxpayers within our economy. And I strongly believe the agreement, which was hard negotiated by both sides, gets that balance right again. Just to answer your question of detail there, local bargaining refers to issues that uh, would be important to different sectors of our public service. So because our public service is so varied, Different issues will matter in different ways. Our teaching unions might prioritise a matter that would be very different to what our nursing unions would prioritise. And local bargaining just refers to leaving aside a, um, an amount of money during the wage agreement that can be used in different ways to deal with those issues. Yeah. And it's included in the overall figures. You also say that those on lowest incomes will receive up to 17.3% over the lifetime of the agreement, inclusive of that local bargaining provision. Uh, how would that work out? Like if someone gets 9.25% because there's no local provision, but let's say they do, they get 1025 who gets 17.3%? Uh, the very lowest uh, levels of income within uh, our public service, and of which there are relatively speaking few because of the value that we place on our public servants, uh, uh, will receive the biggest gains. And the reason for that is that some of the increases that will happen across the two years are expressed either as a percentage increase or as a cash payment or a Cash payment is the wrong word. An overall fixed payment would be a better way of saying it. And if you have an overall fixed payment, that means that those who are on lower income will benefit more. Okay, we've always said that uh, when you do percentage uh, deals, the people who've got more to begin with end up getting far more in every deal. Because, you know, 10% of 100 grand is 10 grand. 10% of 30 grand is only 3 grand. So the gap in absolute terms gets wider. Uh, it doesn't actually because of the point you just made to me a moment ago. Uh, the reason why those who are on lower income uh, will benefit more from disagreement is because the feature of it is that there will be some fixed payments uh, for those 
uh, who were on lower income. And because of that, those who are on lower income will gain more. Uh, overall, the agreement is uh, worth more to those who are on low middle income within our public servants than those who are on higher mm. income, uh, reflecting the fact that, of course, those who are on lower income uh, are more affected by yeah. what has happened but, but with there prices is that going up. fundamental mathematical thing, and I, I, I use 30 grand, say, and 100 grand as an example. If you're on 30 grand, you get 10%, you're now on 33. Uh, if you're on 100 grand, you get 10%, you're now on 110. So the difference, which was 70 between the lowest and the highest, now becomes 77. So uh, th- that's why the gap widens with percentages, which I always believe is a kind of a flawed arrangement. But then we also have to bear in mind that those who are on higher incomes within our public servants, public services, uh, would be doing work that is really important to our society and to our economy. If you look at a hospital consultant and the work that they do, if you would look at uh, those, for example, who uh, work in um, engineering, who would work in planning, uh, who would be in doing and providing public services for which there's a lot of demand for the work that they do within the private sector. Uh, we as an employer uh, not only need to be fair to the taxpayer, also need to recognise the work our public servants do, but for many parts of our public services as well, they need to be competitive against the private sector alternative. Now, looking at, at the end of this deal, after four years, when the maximum is being paid, in addition to what you had offered, the 8.5%, this represents an increase of about $450 million, there or thereabouts. I mean, is that affordable? Looking down, um, y- yes. we can't predict the future, but an extra $450 million on top of the existing offer is a fairly substantial whack. It is, uh, but it is going to be spread over four different budget years. And I did say at the very be at different stages in this process uh, that uh, I was willing to negotiate. And I did accept once you go into the Workplace Relations Commission, you do, of course, need to make changes in your proposal. Uh, but if I look at where I was hoping to get this agreement to, and where we are at the moment, I do believe it is, and I'm certain that it is affordable for the taxpayer and that we can deliver against this agreement while making progress on other priorities that our country wants us to deliver. Now, already we've heard Annette Cunningham of the AGSI saying, you know, there was no real understanding of Garthi's difficulties uh, when we got face to face in the talks. They didn't seem to know, they didn't seem to understand what our difficulties are. We understand only too well, uh, but this is a negotiation and we are trying to come up with an agreement that works for 400,000 public servants. And uh, uh, you were asking me questions earlier on about the affordability of it. Uh, and ultimately a compromise is reached. And when a compromise is reached, it's still the case uh, that not everybody uh, will feel uh, that the compromise that has been reached is what they were hoping for. Um, But I still believe and hope coming out of the process this morning, uh, the case will be made not only by me, but by others regarding why this is a fair and an affordable outcome and recognises all the work that's been done Mm -hmm. in our public services. And of course, the very reason we have a local bargaining element, which you raised questions with with me earlier on, is then to handle issues that are specific Mm. to different parts of our public service. What about uh, the Defence Forces? Um, They're largely agreed to be underpaid for what they do. They have different arrangements about overtime and so on compared to the Gardaí who, uh, you know, do rather better than the army. Will there be a separate kind of look at the army and the need for recruitment and retention? But we're implementing the recommendations that have come out of the recent commission in relation to the status of our defence forces. 
that had led to changes in relation to allowances that do look to make sure that our defence forces are competitive employers. I would just make the point that I think the challenge the Irish defence forces are facing isn't too different from other defence forces across the world, which is when you're in a position of very high employment within an economy, all employers struggle uh, to attract the people they would want in the numbers they want. But it does go back to the point I made earlier on that there is a local bargaining agreement within it. Uh, that over the lifetime of the agreement will allow progress on some specific matters that matter to mm. each element of yeah, our public services. People might say 1% it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, you know. Well, 1% has a value of our overall wage agreement is an awful lot of money. I know, it's, uh, what is it, 250 million per 1%. So it's a lot of money in overall terms, but down to the individual, if they get a hike of 1% on their meagre salary, they'll say, that's no good to me. Uh, I, I would respectfully say that within our public services at the moment, I don't, I, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that we have many who are on meagre salaries the, at the moment. Well, the, the basic uh, private in the army. Uh, indeed, but the, uh, we do have uh, wage agreements in place. We do have allowances in place that have been improved, that have looked to make the uh, Defence Force as a competitive employer. Uh, uh, but as I said, this is the reason why we want a multi-year pay agreement overall to try to improve terms and conditions, but to do so in a way that is affordable. Now, this uh, from Michael. The minister must realise that this percentage increase to public services is going to close a lot of small businesses in Ireland. The minimum wage has already caused huge issues with staff. Uh, I'm a small business, around 70 staff. We've had meetings in the last two weeks to save jobs. The increased staff are, uh, that they're looking for in line with the minimum change would cost us around 350000 per year, which we cannot afford and cannot be passed on to our customers. The government have totally forgotten about the impact on small and medium businesses here and the knock-on effects. But this is the very balance we need to get right. I mean, you were asking me earlier on, Uh, about, you know, can this make a difference to the wages of public services? You were making the point just a moment ago that to me that 1% is not a lot of money. The other side of the coin that I'm very, very much aware of is the signalling effect of a wage agreement into private sector wages, into our economy and to decisions that private sector employers have to make. I'm very much aware of the uh, challenges that smaller businesses are facing at the moment. Uh, But what we have here is an agreement that is 4% for this year, uh, 4.25% for this year, I should say, which is in line with how we expect overall wages in our economy to grow are only slightly ahead. I'm I'm just wondering, you know, you look after the public service and most of them have tenure. They have a job for life. Now, we'll talk about Section 39 workers in a moment. But... Um, all the increases that you have uh, put in there, there are increased sick pay entitlements. Uh, there's a PRSI increase. Admittedly, at the moment, it's small. Um, there'll be the uh, pension auto-enrolment scheme. There's talk of uh, you know miscarriage leave. There's talk of all sorts of fertility leave, all these things, all of which cost small businesses particularly, not the huge ones, but the small businesses, um, a, a huge amount of money. I mean, how many of them will go to the wall because of, if you like, the government's good intentions of providing a better uh, employment situation for employees with these various difficulties. Pat, this is the reason why these negotiations have taken so long and have taken so many, many months. A moment ago, you were just describing a 1% change as meagre. And I was making the point to you that that's many hundreds of millions of euro. 
And the reason why we've worked so hard to reach an agreement that over two, that is paced over two and a half years is in recognition that the change of wages within our public sector can have a knock-on effect. And I believe but, the but overall, all those other things that I mentioned, oh, sure. all the extra entitlements of the more leave for this, more leave for that, more leave for the other, which will be borne substantially by the employer. And all of the changes that we have made uh, have been subject to public consultation. Uh, we do acknowledge that the changes, when they come together at a particular point in time as they are, uh, can have an effect on smaller employers. And I'm really aware of that. But that is the reason why we have a cost of doing business grant that is available at the moment, over 250 million euro uh, that has been made available to small and medium sized businesses. And overall, um, uh, one of the benefits of trying to create an economy that's nearly at full employment is that we have the people working that in turn can create the demand for the goods and services that our businesses sell. Uh, Question here, will they be increasing the wage allowance uh, for carers, um, the my partner will get 10% over two years, but lose the carer's allowance due to these increases. Uh, know, so giving with one hand, taking with the other. Uh, so, but it, what we do in many of the different budgets that we do is we change the eligibility criteria for access to different uh, uh, supports and grants that are available uh, from our social insurance system. So it could be the case, and I acknowledge it could be the case, that for some uh, because of the wage increase they get, it might have a knock-on effect on their eligibility uh, for certain grants or supports they get. But I really hope that will be a small number. And when we get to do the budget again, this is something we always have a look at. And what about Section 39 workers? We have a wage agreement in place for Section 39 workers. We reached an outcome on that in the Workplace Relations Commission there uh, towards the end of last year. That stretches into some of this year. And what I said is on foot of reaching an agreement on the uh, decisions that we are now discussing, I'd engage in another process during the year with Section 39 organisations. So the care workers, teachers assistants and other low paid workers get a tiny increase in comparison to their higher paid counterparts. And this is because they have a less important job. That's from Coon and Donegal. You talk about the consultant and the kind of work they do, the nurses and so on, how important that is. And then the people we really can't do without, the care workers, the people who do home care, who don't even get a mileage in uh, some situations. I mean, they're as vital in their own way. The skill set may be different and perhaps not as sophisticated, but they're vital to us. So the overall agreement is uh, roughly uh, uh, 10 and a quarter percent uh, overall. Those on lowest incomes benefit by 17 percent. So let me just emphasise what I said at the start of this interview in response to your very important questions. Those on lowest income gain the most in percentage terms. Mm. It's 17% for those who are on lower incomes. It's 10%, 10 10.25% overall. Uh, There's another one here. Uh, I'm looking at uh, public jobs because public servants are the best looked after in the country. I run a charity. We're literally operating hand to mouth. It's so difficult to get funding and everyone is working for little or nothing. Why would anyone bother? There is an issue, I think, in this country about charities. So much of the work that might be done by the state is done by by charities. But this is the point then about Section 39 organisations and this is why I entered into an agreement and provided public funding there last year to try to deal with the consequences of wage agreements on Section 39 organisations. So it's a matter I recognise. Uh, we do have a number of different service providers that provide really important work and really important support within our society I recognised that last year with the agreement that we reached. Now, uh, on to other matters. Uh, The uh, Fiscal Advisory Council and the uh, 
the part-time job that is uh, running that and you've decided to work them harder and pay them less. Uh, well, the uh, uh, payments, Which, the fees that have been made available to members of the Fiscal Advisory Council increased. Uh, I, I know the Minister for Finance received a letter from the chair uh, of the Fiscal Advisory yeah. Board. And he's an interim chair, so it, the, he has no skin in the game. He doesn't want the job permanently and it's not really a full-time job. But what you've done is you've reduced the daily rate that's paid to these people or rather paid to their employer to release them. You've cut it basically in half. Uh, we've increased overall uh, the yeah, payments. Yeah, we've asked them to do more days. Path. We've increased the payment. We've gigantically increased the resources that are available to the Fiscal Advisory Council over the number of years uh, because there are few organisations that play a more important role in the analysis of economic policy than them. I'm always very reluctant to comment on the terms and conditions of a particular individual uh, or office even. Um, and I know the chair will be engaging with the Minister for Finance on it. He, he but, said but, he'd, he wouldn't bother if, if there's no agreement in sight. It should have been done in a couple of months. It's seven or eight months on. There's no sign of any agreement. And it turns out the department is not for turning. And he's saying, well, if there's no prospect, I'm just I'm out of here. But look at the questions that you've been putting to me earlier on there about the need to be conscious of the decisions that we make on public pay and the impact they have uh, on how the private sector perceive mm-hmm. posts. But uh, it looks like it's vindictiveness. It looks like you guys criticised our budget. Well, we're not having that, so we're going to dock the pay so we get some sort of inferior uh, creature coming in to take on the job of chairing this particular council and we'll maybe be able to roll over that person because if we're only paying peanuts, we will get a monkey. Uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council <clears throat> and their peer organisations don't have a track record of attracting monkeys. Uh, these are very prestigious and important organisations. Uh, but we do also have uh, principles of pay uh, that stretch across all chair roles within our public and semi-sector. And I need to be consistent. Uh, we pay, we have many different chair uh, executive chair, non-executive chair roles, and we need to pay them in a consistent manner. Uh, and that is what we're aiming to do. Uh, the complaint issue, is that if you issues pay, can develop, pay, the, pay them. And I'm sure engagement will happen uh, on the matter. Uh, but if you look at how IFAC have performed in recent years, they've never had a difficulty in attracting people of the highest calibre. And I don't see that diminishing in the future. If you dog the money, maybe that will be the case. Anyway, we, we shall see how that all evolves. Uh, the, you just referred to docking money again. Let me just go back to the point I made. No, here, but you're that, looking that, for that more. more has this been is paid. a per diem. This is a per diem arrangement. So if you're asking people to do more days, perhaps there might be more money at the end of it. That goes to the employer who's releasing that person. It doesn't go to the person themselves. If you're saying to the employer, well, we, we, not, we need so many days from your guy but we're only going to pay half what we used to pay per diem. Well, why would they release? Uh, So many different employers, particularly in the uh, universities, uh, uh, would see having a member of the Fiscal Advisory Council being on their staff has been a very, very important benefit and reflects well on them. Uh, And uh, again, uh, this is an organisation that we have huge respect and value for. I do. I recognise their contribution at many, many different points. Uh, but we have many, many different chair roles and board roles within our public sector. And it's important that we treat all these matters consistently. Um, on WhatsApp. Well, this country can really afford another pay and pensions increase to the public and civil service sector. No, we cannot. This country already can't afford the public sector pensions time bomb that lies ahead. That's from Pat and Cor. 
uh, we we made a, a number of changes over the last decade in relation to our public sector pensions and how they're structured. In particular, we brought in changes from 2013 uh, that are going to have a very, very big effect on the sustainability of our public pensions in the years to come. Mm. In particular, where our public servants now pay a higher contribution of their wages to the sustainability of our pensions. And if you look at the years to come, our public pension payments in the future as a share of our national income will be at an affordable level because of the changes that we have made. And also, of course, this is the reason we want to bring in an also enrolment mm. system uh, to deal with the issue that we have many people within the private sector that may not have adequate pensions in the future. Um, the question of the RT licence fee and uh, the, the currently unfolding uh, scandal about Toysha the Musical. I'm not going to go there with uh, you, but there is a general principle Catherine Martin has been addressing and she seems to have an appetite for uh, state funding uh, for RTE. There might still be an advertising co- uh, uh, a portion of that, but uh, Catherine Martin might come to Cabinet in a few months' time and say, I need £200 million a year from you to fund RTE. Uh, we have a television licence at the moment. At the uh, moment. Uh, and that's to continue into 2024. That's what your colleague uh, in the Department of Finance said. For this year, it's certainly going to go ahead. Well, the full answer I was about to give you there is that we have one at the moment that the majority of people within our country still pay. A significant majority, despite all of the different challenges that RT have faced. And I, like the Minister for Finance, and indeed when I was the Minister for Finance, I cannot envisage a funding model for RTE in which uh, that uh, uh, payment is still not in place. So you can't envisage whatever form the licence fee uh, would take, that it would be publicly funded through some sort of fee. That's your vision? Yes. Okay, so the idea of the state fully funding uh, RTE, the the, uh, public service aspect of that, that's a Uh, uh, no-no. I've said before, uh, that would have two consequences. Uh, number one, it would open up the funding of RTE uh, to uh, what we refer to as the estimates process. In other words, it's funding decisions that governments make. Uh, and I fundamentally do not believe uh, that state broadcasters uh, should have the amount of money that's available to them determined by a government. And secondly, it opens up the very familiar question that if we are going to cancel a payment that brings in 200 million euro uh, per year, we have to find that money elsewhere. And 200 million euro in a single year is a huge amount of money. So you're not going to do it. Um, the, the final thing is really about the COVID inquiry. It's to be a learning exercise rather than a blame exercise. There may be families out, of, out there whose uh, family members died because they were moved maybe from a hospital into a nursing home, COVID was rampant. There were certainly tardy decisions made by certain people about a masking, about antigen testing, and we cover this uh, to the nth degree on this programme. Uh, the idea that, you know, we're looking to point the finger at individuals in RTE, individual ABC or 123, but we don't want to point fingers at individuals who made key decisions that may have cost lives. It'll still be an accountability exercise, though. We have to learn lessons and those involving learning lessons will involve individuals uh, appearing and engaging with this evaluation. All I and the government want to avoid is we end up with an adversarial legal process that goes on for years that reports far too late to make any difference. That's all. 
uh, we have ample and I have ample history uh, of processes that are highly legal that cost the taxpayer a lot. We're going to have another pandemic at some point in the future. By the time that pandemic happens, I want to make sure we've learned the lessons from the last experience that was so difficult for our country. Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Dunhu, thank you very much uh, for joining us after a a night with virtually no sleep. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.